Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have another one of the heavy hitters in the endurance realm. It is Inigo Mujica, who is the godfather of tapering for endurance events. If you are not familiar with Inigo's work, you certainly should be. And I can guarantee you that if you've gone through a race and if you have done a taper yourself, you have been influenced by Inigo's work. I found this conversation absolutely fascinating and it was an honor to host him on the podcast as I have used his work throughout my coaching career to inform how to taper my athletes for various events. I can't say enough about Inigo and his research. He is one of the true scientists out there that has that also has a wealth of experience on the practical side of things, getting athletes ready for events. I know it's summertime. I know you guys are thinking about your last little bits of training, and I know that you're thinking about how you want to arrange your last few weeks so that you can reap all of the hard-earned benefits of all of your training to the greatest extent during the tapering process. So I hope that this podcast provides you with a little bit of a guide on how to arrange those last few crucial weeks. So here we go. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Inigo Majika. I want to know first off, like, What's on your plate right now? Like you play in a lot of different endurance and team sports. I seem to like see you everywhere. Like everywhere I look, you've got your fingerprints kind of all over these different sports. Like what does it look like right now? What's a day in life like for you? Well, um, at the moment, my main occupation is uh, I'm, I'm the sports science uh, coordinator for Spanish aquatics. So I am in charge of uh, sports science in, in pool swimming, open water swimming, uh, water polo, diving, uh, and synchronized swimming. But most of the time is dedicated to swimming. But I have PhD students who are doing their work in, uh, in rugby, uh, in professional cycling, and also another one who is working on powerlifting. So that's that's probably why you see my name in different areas, uh, mostly because I'm co-supervising PhD students who are working in different sports. Do you feel that that breadth helps you across all of those areas? Because you're talking about now not only endurance sports, but you're talking about endurance sports that are largely technique driven being swimming versus endurance sports that are more like purely cardiovascular, like cycle, like cycling would be, which you have a big footprint in that sport as well, all the way down to powerlifting. Like, do you feel that makes you better across all of them? Like having that breadth? Uh, I don't do it in that uh, sense. I just do it because it's more fun, you know, having (laughs) I'm always uh, I'm always uh, trying to to have fun, you know. When 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 I talk about uh, work with friends, and uh, I say, so how does it feel to work? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> for for me, it, it, yeah, it is work, but uh, it's mostly about having fun. So if if I'm interested in the topic of uh, some student who comes up to me and requests my supervision and uh, you know, I, I say yes, but I don't say yes uh, because I'm looking for uh, a, a, a wide, uh, a, a very wide uh, spectrum of professional expertise or anything like that. It's just because if I feel that I can help someone and, and, and the project seems solid and interesting and, and fun, I, uh, I go for it. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk about one of the areas where I was really introduced to your work. And I would say, at least from the outside looking in, it's probably one of the areas that you have made the most impact on. Like when you go back and you're an 80-year-old man and you look back on your career, I'm going to gather that this area is the most fond area that, that, that people can continue to draw information from. And this is this area of tapering. 
your name shows up all over the literature. If you just search taper in any database you want to, you're going to be the heavy hitter in that uh, uh, on that on that search term. So what I want to do is I want to start out by by discussing the general framework of tapering for an endurance event and then how we can adapt that framework into an ultra marathon season because this podcast is going to come out I'm going to strategically plan it for the perfect point where everybody is about to start racing in their summer season and tapering is at the top of their list and as you know tapering tends to make endurance athletes crazy um, so hopefully this can be a little bit of a guidepost that athletes can use when they're designing their own training or if coaches are listening to this, if they're helping athletes design their training. So let's kind of start out uh, in a go with the fundamentals. What are the fundamental aspects of tapering down for an event, any endurance event that athletes need to be aware of as they're going through that process? Well, I think the first thing that they need to have clear in their heads is that the, the main aim of the taper is to optimize the adaptations that they've been achieving throughout months of uh, solid training, but at the same time, getting rid of the fatigue that they have also been accumulating. So uh, I would say that the main goal is to dissipate accumulated fatigue. And if simultaneously they can uh, optimize their adaptations, uh, that's an extra point. But the main goal is not to, to get even better. You can get even better, but the main goal is to make sure that you dissipate the fatigue that you've been accumulating. Because this is about the balance between how much adaptations you have been, or how many adaptations, or what level of adaptations you've been able to achieve. But quite often, those adaptations have been hidden by the fatigue that you've been accumulating. So as you reduce the training load, you manage to dissipate that fatigue and the adaptations that you already have start showing up. But we also know that as you dissipate that accumulated fatigue, you also recover your ability to uh, adapt to the training that you do. And that can help you further the adaptations that you have previously achieved during months of intensive training. So that would be point number one. The goal of the taper is to uh, come to a positive balance between adaptations and accumulated fatigue. Point number two is how you achieve that and how you manipulate the training variables so that uh, you optimize those adaptations at the same time as you dissipate that fatigue. And in that sense, we can manipulate uh, mainly three training variables, training intensity, training volume, and training frequency. Or in other words, how hard you train, how much you train, and how often you train. And research has shown that maintaining intensity is key if you want to maintain or even optimize those adaptations that you already have. So you should not be manipulating your training during the taper at the expense of training intensity. That doesn't mean that you should not reduce the amount of training at high intensity. You should maintain the intensity, but when you reduce your total amount of training, it's going to be at the expense of low intensity training, but also at the expense of high intensity training. So if you have a proportion, a proportion of, say, 80% low to moderate intensity, 20% high intensity, you can maintain that same proportion. So that means that everything is going to be reduced. But the, the speed of the high intensity work should be maintained during the taper. So that uh, leads us to the second point. The second point is, okay, if you cannot manipulate intensity too much, how do we reduce the training load? And the answer is mainly by reducing training volume, how much you train. Yes, you can reduce the duration of each training session, or you can get rid of some training sessions. But that should not 
be the main way of reducing the training volume. You should not reduce the training volume just by getting rid of training sessions. It is better to reduce the distance of, or the duration of those training sessions, but to do them. Usually, uh, we recommend that training frequency should not be reduced by more than about 20%. And in particular in sports that are very dependent on technique. Because if you eliminate training sessions, you might lose the feel. And feel is very important for athletes in all sports. And even more so in sports that are very dependent on, on, on technique and the application of that technique for an efficient uh, movement pattern. Another variable that we can manipulate during the taper is the duration of the taper. How long before the big competition you start reducing the training load? And research has been showing repeatedly that as a general rule for the big majority of athletes, we should go for a two-week taper. Yes, we can then individualize and, and fine tune the duration. And for some athletes, it might be better to extend the taper a little bit. For some athletes, it might be better to reduce the duration of the taper a little bit. But as a general rule, if we have to give a, a recommendation that will suit most people, we would recommend to go for a two-week taper. And then finally, uh, another general rule that we can recommend is the, the shape of the reduction of the training load. Do we suddenly cut our training load by half? Or do we progressively cut our training load as the competition approaches? Well, research uh, seems to show, in particular for running and swimming, that a progressive taper in which the, the training load is uh, reduced, not all of a sudden, but more progressively as the competition approaches, is more effective than a step taper. And we call a step taper uh, a non-standardized, um, uh, sorry, a non-progressive standardized reduction of the training load. So for example, if I am training uh, 10 miles a day, suddenly I start running only uh, seven miles a day. That would be a step taper. And that seems to be not as effective as reducing progressively. So those would be the general rules that apply for the big majority of people in the majority of sports. I'm going to go back to the very first one because I think that this is really interesting and can probably be a bridge from some of the traditional endurance sports to ultramarathon running. You said right off of the right out of the gate that the primary role of the taper is to first reduce the amount of fatigue, first reduce the amount of fatigue and then maybe as a bonus optimize the underlying physiology and all we do see tapering strategies out there that in my estimation flip the order of those two they're looking at the optimization first trying to create muscle tension or trying to create some sort of like super adaptation within the training cycle at the expense of reducing the overall fatigue that the actual that the athlete actually has and normally it's trying to take it's trying to take advantage of a specific like race situation right looking at okay this is what's going to happen during the race we're going to try to optimize this physiology during during this taper but in order to do so we're not optimizing the reduction of, of fatigue. Why should it be in that order? I guess fundamentally, why should we look at tapering through first reducing the amount of fatigue and then through optimizing the physiology? Uh, well, let me make it clear that I, I haven't presented that as a temporal situation of uh, a temporal order of first reduce fatigue then optimize uh, adaptations. Uh, I'm just talking about the, the level of priority. Correct. And Correct. 
a lot, a lot of what we know about uh, the effects of tapering comes from the application of mathematical modeling. And what we have learned is that the main relationship of performance improvement as a result of the taper is not with improved physiological adaptations, but with reduced accumulated fatigue. So the mathematical models indicate that the main reason or the main driver of improved performance is reduced fatigue. That doesn't mean that first you reduce fatigue and then you optimize adaptations. But in terms of, uh, in, in quantitative terms, it is more important to reduce fatigue than it is to optimize the adaptations because that accumulated fatigue is what is hiding the adaptations that are already there. Most of the adaptations are already there. Uh, further developments of the mathematical modeling approach have shown that as a result of the taper, you can also recover physiological capacities that were impaired by intensive training. And when you recover those physiological capacities, then you can train better. And that better training might lead to additional adaptations during the taper. But that's not going to happen if you are still fatigued, if you are carrying over a lot of fatigue, because you will be unable to perform that really good, high-quality training during the taper. Mm. And the three main flavors that you can reduce this fatigue are reducing training load through reducing the volume, reducing the frequency, and reducing the volume of, uh, of intensity. And there's all these different kind of contrived ways to do it, which you mentioned, a stepwise taper or uh, more of a progressive, uh, more of a progressive taper or a linear taper. And most of the research has shown that this nonlinear reduction in training, in training volume, training load, in order to induce a taper is the most effective. Why is that the case? Why is a nonlinear load? First off, I think we can go and re-describe what a nonlinear uh, reduction in training load actually looks like. But why, in fact, is that the case? And what are the underlying physiological mechanisms for that to for, for that to be like the leader of the pack? Hmm. That's a that's a difficult question to uh, to answer because um, we don't have enough research comparing one method with the other. So this this uh, conclusion comes from the application of a meta-analytical approach to the available research. So the, the linear reduction means that, uh, let's say you reduce your training volume each day by one mile. And, and that way, one day you run 10 miles, the next day nine, the next day seven, then eight, the next day seven, and so on. That's simply an example. Uh, the exponential way or the uh, nonlinear way would mean that the, at the beginning of the taper, the drop in training load is higher and then it tends to become more stable. Uh, one possible reason why that is uh, more effective is that you might tend to dissipate fatigue quicker at the beginning of the taper, and that allows you to do uh, more high quality more high quality work as the taper goes on. And then you can optimize those adaptations that we were uh, mentioning before. That might be one possible reason, but we don't have enough uh, physiology based research to give you a precise answer about that. So just to like mathematically describe this a little bit, we'll, we'll keep our uh, example of a runner's running 10 miles a day, right? So in the first week of the taper, they might reduce that to six miles a day. And then the second week of the taper, they might reduce that to four miles a day. So they're taking a big chunk right out of the gate. And that would be more of a stepwise taper. But if you wanted to kind of like draw the, you know, draw the conclusion in between all those days, I think the listeners would get the point. You're reducing things very quickly early on, and then they kind of level out closer to, uh, to, uh, to the race. Sometimes figuring out that 
exact mathematical model is a little bit impractical, right? Because people like round numbers, they like their routes, and they like to, you know, stick to certain things. But let's practically walk through this example for just a normal endurance athlete in terms of about what the what those volume reductions should actually look like on an order of percentage so that the listeners at home can internalize, okay, I'm running 40 miles a week. During taper week number one, this is what it should look like. And then during taper week number two, that is what it should look like. What do those percentages typically look like for an endurance athlete? And then we'll try to get more specific within ultra running. Well, from that uh, meta-analysis that I mentioned before, uh, what came out was that the ideal reduction of training volume that applies to most athletes would be between 40 and 60% of the volume that you usually do in the pre-taper mesocycle. So let's say in the final four weeks before you start tapering, um, you've been training, the average daily training of those final four weeks is 10 miles. Well, the average of your taper should be between six and four miles. How you get to there could be by simply doing every day uh, six miles or every day five miles, and that would put you in that range. Or you might get there by doing in the first few days of the taper, seven miles, 6.5, 6, uh, 5.5, 5. And then in the final three, four, five days of the taper, you are simply running uh, 2.8, 2.5, And at the end, when you add up all the volume that you have done, it comes to uh, an average daily mileage during the taper of four to six miles. Okay? So there is no magic about doing exactly 2.8, 2.7, 2.6. But uh, when, when we do uh, research studies, if we want to apply an exponential model uh, to our taper, that's how I do it. That's how I calculate it. Right. And and I tell and I tell the athletes today you should be running 2.6. But you know, on a on a on a real world of uh, of athletics, uh, you don't need to be so um, so precise about the amount, as long as the total amount falls within that range of 40 to 60%. So I like the fact that we've already brought out the precision is probably unnecessary (laughs) as long as you are getting the percentages close. So let's take this initial framework of we're going to use a two-week taper and we're going to back off the total amount of volume somewhere between 40 and 60% by the end of the taper using this exponential decay it's going to it's going to the training volume is going to drop off quickly initially not not by the end of the taper in the total amount the of total the taper amount. yep yeah the total weekly amount or, or the total amount of the taper should be between 40 and 60% of your typical amount before the taper okay okay so starting out with that initial framework for a typical endurance athlete Ultra runners have this interesting proposition where the duration of the event is usually in excess of even what we see at the Ironman distance. Sometimes it's days. How can ultra runners look at this two-week 60% reduction proposition? Do they need to modify it for this specific sport? And if so, in what ways would you theorize that that modification is necessary? Does it need to be longer? Does it need to be shorter? Does it need to be more? What conclusions can we draw from some of the underlying physiology? Uh, Look, Jason, I, I like to base my recommendations always on the available research. And the available research does not show any differences depending on the event duration. So the recommendations that I have given so far, at least according to the research, applies uh, to all events irrespective of the event duration. That means that 
those recommendations are valid for someone who is running a 100 meter sprint. For someone who is running a 1500 meter event or a mile, or for someone who is running a marathon or an ultra marathon, it's not, according to the research, it is not the duration of the event and therefore the metabolic contribution to power pro provision during the event, what will determine the ideal characteristics of the taper. What determines the ideal characteristics of the taper is not the event, it's the athlete. Mm. And that means that within the world of ultra runners, you might have athletes who will benefit from a shorter taper and athletes who will benefit from a longer taper. And within the world of sprinters, you will have athletes benefiting from a shorter taper or a longer taper. So it's not the event that is going to determine how you taper. It is the athlete that is going to determine how you taper. Every podcast I have, it comes back to the individual nature of things. And it's it's hard for that. You can understand it's kind of hard for the listeners who are not domain experts to try to, fig, to try to figure that out. But if what I guide people towards is what has been successful or not successful in the past and can you can you actually draw the conclusion to that's what was successful or unsuccessful, right? That's a different, that's a much harder conversation to have. Um, Jason, that, that is why we gave recommendations for the big majority of athletes to start off. Yeah. You know, those those recommendations of do not reduce the intensity, reduce the training load, the training volume by 40 to 60 percent, try to maintain the frequency relatively high. Uh, go for a two-week taper, uh, go for an exponential taper. That is going to apply to most athletes. But if for some reason some athlete says, well, it didn't work for me, then you can fine-tune and look for alternatives. Right. Let's quantify this a little bit because I think that this is another misnomer that's out there in the world in, in terms of how much this actually impacts performance at the end of the day. We know that if we just rest, we're going to get a performance benefit just from the rest, right? You go through training cycles and you apply rest and hopefully the athlete gets a little bit better. Applying a more precise taper is, is, we're trying to do that in the vein of being additive to the normal performance improvement that we get from just everyday mesocycle rest, everyday training cycle rest. But how much is it actually, when we look at the research, how much of an impact does applying some sort of tapering strategy actually add to the performance at the end of the day? When you compare your performance before you start tapering to after tapering, there is a kind of magic number that comes up uh, quite often, which is about 3%. That doesn't mean that every athlete is going to improve right. their performance by 3%. But there is usually a range of 05 to 6%, but the average value is going to be around 3%. But the difference between getting it right with the taper and just resting is that the risk of losing adaptation and the training if you just stop training is very high whereas the risk of losing adaptation and detraining if you do a taper and you continue training and you optimize your technique to your new physiological capacities is very very low so if an athlete underperforms on the day of the event, uh, it is very unlikely to be as a result of losing adaptation if they have gone through a taper. But it is likely that they might underperform if they simply stop training. Because some physiological adaptations are lost very, very quickly if you simply stop training. But that's not going to happen if you continue training uh, with a taper program. That leads me to the next part of this: is what are the risks of? No, no, that's not that's not the way I want to describe it. How can athletes screw it up? 
because a lot of tapering is avoiding the negative, right? Just as you mentioned, we're trying we're trying to reap all of the positive adaptations and remove all of the all of the negative things that are going on. What are some of the pitfalls that athletes should watch out for when they're implementing a tapering process and just trying not to screw it up at, the, at that point? I tell my athletes this all the time in the last four weeks. It's like, let's just not screw it up. Let's not screw it up. You've done all the work. You've trained for the last year or six months or however long it is. Let's not screw it up in the last few weeks. What, so what should athletes watch out for in those last couple of weeks as they're implementing their tapers? Uh I think that the main way of screwing it up would be not resting enough, being too afraid of reducing the training volume and getting to the to the race uh, unrested. As I just said, it is much more likely to have a, a counterperformance because you haven't rested enough than because you have rested too much. That's very unlikely to happen. Uh, also, sometimes we might consider that the taper didn't work or I didn't get what I wanted from the taper. And, it's, and it might be that physiologically you were perfectly ready, but psychologically you couldn't cope with the pressure of uh, competition. So maybe we, we tend to uh, overreact to the taper and um, overreact to the counterperformance and then completely change the taper for the next competition. And maybe the taper was fine, and maybe you were physiologically ready, but you didn't cope with the pressure of competition. And, and in that case, you might need a, a different psychological approach rather than a, a different taper. And another another uh, error that uh, is often made is completely changing the, the the training methodology when the taper comes. You know, sometimes uh, athletes have these uh, athletes and, and coaches too. They might have this um, uh, tendency to say, okay, tomorrow we start tapering and suddenly they start doing things that they haven't done before. They start, <laughs> they start doing a, a completely different type of training. You know, we, they start doing uh, interval training that they haven't done before. They stop doing something that they've been doing. And the taper should be a natural outgrowth of the training that has been done previously. You shouldn't suddenly change completely your, your training methodology just because competition is approaching and, and, and now it's time to taper. The taper should be a, a rational and natural evolution of what you've been doing previously. But yet you just spoke to one of the most fascinating aspects of the taper that I think that actually goes on. And this is the classic taper tantrums that athletes have. They get irritable. They get angsty. They start looking at the course profile 10 times a day and they get all psychologically people watching the YouTube video can see uh, it go just slapping his ass off right now. Uh, they get all wrapped up in these things that are not material to their performance at the end of the day as a result of removing this big source of stress that they've had for the last six months. And that is all the hard training that they've been doing. That's real. You've seen it in athletes. I've seen it in athletes. And so much so that I think as coaches, we have to do a good job of preparing athletes for this natural consequence what counsel do you give athletes as they're starting to prepare for their taper specifically for this like psychological element of having all of this extra energy around that you want something to do with? How do you, how do we counsel athletes better on, on dealing with that particular aspect of the taper? Well, I, I usually say that they simply need to trust the process. If they understand what they are doing and why they are doing it or why their coach is doing it, uh, they should trust the process. They should have confidence. Uh, I have a book on tapering out there. Uh, I, I think it's the only book on tapering that is available worldwide. And I have contributions from different coaches and different athletes from different sports. And one of the contributions comes from uh, Bob Bowman. For those who are 
ultra runners that don't see anything else and they, they don't care about any <laughs> any other sport. Uh, Bob Bowman is the coach of Michael Phelps. I'm sure they know who Michael <laughs> Phelps is. Anyway, uh, Bob Bowman in this contribution in my book says that we should not overreact because of how an athlete feels on a given training session during the taper. You know, we need to trust the process. If everything has been done well, everything has been going well, according to plan, we know what we are doing. We know why we are doing it. It doesn't matter if one day, five days out of competition, an athlete feels like crap. Because, you know, we all have good days and bad days. And that applies to how uh, quickly you are thinking. And that applies to how your body is uh, performing as well. So maybe an athlete feels terrible one day and he might say, oh, this is this is awful. I, I, I feel like crap. And because we are so close from competition, we might tend to overreact and, and change everything. But that doesn't make any sense. If we trust the process, maybe the next day that athlete is going to be flying. So we shouldn't... Uh, we shouldn't pay too much attention to how an athlete feels on a given day if everything else has been going according to plan and, and we have a plan. The problem is when we don't have a plan and we don't know why we are doing things. Well, and I think another issue that goes hand in hand with that is that during the tapering process, because the event is is drawing so close, there's this zoom in phenomenon that everybody has. Everything gets scrutinized at a very tight level on the daily, on the hour, sometimes even on the hour or on the minute. I felt really good for the first five minutes of this and I felt really bad for the next five minutes. And this micro analysis of what is going on from workout to workout during the taper and also within each workout of the taper itself, you would never do that during a normal training process. You would always have a big picture lens of you're going to have good days and bad days and good intervals and bad intervals and things like that. But because the lens gets so tight during the tapering process, we tend to hyper react to the things that are going on. And I think your point is really well taken that if we have a plan, and we trust the plan, we're less likely to be suspect to do silly things based off of that noise that is coming in during the tapering process. Yeah, you want to avoid the paralysis by analysis. You there, know? You go. That, there you go. There you go. You want to avoid that. And, you know, go to practice, do your training as planned, go home, no big deal. I felt like shit. Okay, that's fine. I felt great. Okay, that's fine too. Don't don't go crazy about how you felt on a given training session just because you are getting closer to competition. You've been training for months. One day is one day, and and it's just another drop in the water for for the entire training process. Yeah, that's so, such good such good words there. A lot of times to help stave that off because I think it's boredom. I think that just contributes to things, right? I mean, you, have, you talk about a 40 to 60% increase in the time that they have available during the day, right? So where are they going to direct that energy other than to analyze training peaks or their power files or their paces from their workout or whatever? Um, a lot of times what I'll do to help combat that is just to make sure that they stock up silly honeydew list types of things that they've been putting off during the training process. And I always make the joke to my wife that I will change all of the burnt out lights in the house when I'm tapering for my event. That is my activity for my tapering so that I'm not thinking about training. I can go around in the 20 lights that have burnt out in the last six months. I've been stocking up for these last couple of weeks that I can go change them on. But the point is, is, is like there's this reservoir of time and energy that is all of a sudden and very dramatically increased for the athlete that athletes and coaches need to be conscientious of going into it to avoid this stir crazy taper tantrums whatever we want to call it well this idea of having extra time on your hands uh, made me think of another mistake that people might make and that is that you have to taper from something 
Oh, I love it. I love it. That means if you've been been training uh, one hour uh, three times a week, you don't taper. What you need to do is train. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you need to taper your training when you've had enough training that has made you accumulate sufficient fatigue to justify the need for some recovery so that you might supercompensate. If you are not training enough that you, so that your performance is dropping because of that amount of training and that amount of accumulated fatigue, the taper is not going to induce any <laughs> supercompensation. You are not going to improve your performance. So when people tell me, yeah, well, I, I, I run or, or I play rugby twice a week with my, with my mates, uh, how do I taper? I say, you don't taper, you train. <laughs> you know, I presented that in my book. I presented like these, uh, this like list of tapering steps that people should, that people should take. Step zero is exactly is exactly that in a go it's train make sure that you train first because you have in your words you have to taper from something you have to have some accumulated training load to actually back off of exactly so that that came from this idea of people having more time in their hands well if they've been training one hour uh, or 45 minutes three times a week they don't have more times in their hands. They have the same amount of times <laughs> of time in their hands during the taper because uh, there is no there is no point in tapering when uh, when you don't have enough uh, training load previously uh, to to induce a drop in your performance that will then uh, produce a supercompensation as a result of the taper. I want to kind of go back to the fundamentals and maybe we can wrap it up there because, um, you know, all too often in the ultra running crowd, you made this comment that is so, I don't think you, you might not realize how poignant it is. A lot of times in the ultra running world, we like to live in our own little bubble and think that we have this own special set of physiology that needs to be completely, completely catered to in every way, shape and form. And one of the ways is tapering. We need to taper somehow fundamentally different than an Ironman triathlete would taper, than a marathon would taper, than a hundred meter sprinter would taper and things like that. But fundamentally what you're saying is, is if we apply these basic concepts of reducing training load, maintaining training intensity, maintaining uh, training frequency that all athletes in all sports use, we're going to hit almost all of the nail on the head from a tapering perspective. As a general rule, I would say yes. Those are the recommendations that apply to most athletes. Uh, And as I said before, maybe you can fine tune a little bit because we have different adaptation and disadaptation profiles. So what is going to determine uh, your exact tapering strategy is your adaptation and disadaptation profile. And that might be uh, for one athlete, uh, quick recovery, quick uh, achievement of the, the, the peak of supercompensation and then quick losing their adaptation. So they are, they are going to need to get back into solid training very quickly after the main event. For another athlete, it might represent uh, that they, they, they might need a much longer taper because they take longer to recover, they take longer to achieve a supercompensation peak but maybe they might have a long duration adaptation. And that means that they can perform really well repeatedly despite not being training a lot because they've been tapering and then they've been going from one competition to another competition, recovering from uh, competition. And, and, and despite a low training load, they might be able to, um, to have very good back-to-back performances. So that will determine how you taper and how you approach your competition phase. It's not the event, it's your own physiology, it's your own adaptation and disadaptation profiles. And those particular adaptation and disadaptation profiles 
might be present in sprinting, in middle distance running, in marathon running, and in ultra marathon running. Can athletes and coaches help derive that individual nature of the training process from the patterns that they pick up in training? Because here's one of the things that I always, I hate to rely on previous tapers to design future tapers. I I do it, but I'm hesitant to do so because performance is always so multifactorial. There's all these different things that go into this soup of ultimate and one day, single day, or even even if you're looking at a cycling stage race or something like that. There's all these different things that ultimately go into performance to say, but to say, well, this taper was effective because the performance was good. It misses a lot of the elements of that soup. So often what I do is I look at the training patterns for a particular athlete, how quick is the adaptive response? How quickly can they? Uh, how quickly can they recover from certain types of training loads? Does it take a week? Does it take three days? And things like that. And I use that to inform the tapering process that I initially design, and then reinforce it with what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past. Is that what athletes should be kind of in, using to inform their tapering process? Is just how they train week to week, month to month. That's that's a perfect approach, uh, Jason. Uh, I'll tell you a story. When when I was doing my PhD, I was doing all this analysis on the uh, training of elite swimmers, and I was applying a mathematical model to come up with the ideal tapering strategy for each one of them, which uh, which we did, and the coaches applied all that. But the first time I came with uh, with the pool with the outcome of the application of the mathematical model. And I presented that to the coaches. I said, this particular swimmer, these characteristics, this is how they should taper. And the answer was, thank you. We knew that. Mm. And because they are the ones who are seeing the swimmers on a day-to-day basis. They, They are the ones who see if someone adapts quickly, if someone recovers quickly, if someone takes a long time to recover and and their competition uh, capacity um, come up, they are the ones who see these things on a day-to-day basis. For them, it was a reinforcement of what they already perceived to get my numbers coming from the application of the mathematical model. But that is something that a good coach should already perceive and should already feel. And if they don't see it or if they don't measure it and if they don't perceive it, they could discuss it with the athletes because the athletes can tell them, can provide them with a lot of information about how they are adapting, how they are coping, how they are recovering. And all of that is going to determine how they should taper for the competition. Yeah. I mean, literally the way that it, it works out in my coaching practice is, is I use the two-week as the standard, right? That's kind of the baseline anchor for the tape, for the tapering time frame. And the athletes who, during a normal recovery cycle, need that cycle to be longer, right? So let's just say normal recovery cycles, five days or deloading phases, five days. If I have an athlete that needs seven days for whatever reason, I'll make the taper longer. Or if I have an athlete that needs a deeper recovery during the same time frame, So let's just say we cut, you know, volume by 50% from a, for a regular athlete during a normal deloading phase. If I have an athlete that needs to cut at 80%, I won't extend the taper but I'll reduce the volume by more because I recognize that pattern in training. Those are the individual responses that I'm, that I'm typically going through as a basis to derive what we're actually doing during the taper because taper is like one-time event. Like maybe you get two of them during a year, but you don't have a lot of ends to, to derive patterns from. So you have to look at these surrogates essentially and using the recovery phases of the deloading phases as surrogates, I always have thought has been quite informative. Yeah, that's an excellent approach. And um, another uh, thing we are looking into is 
does the level of fatigue of the athlete coming into the taper determine how yes. you should taper that athlete mm -hmm. so we are we are finding ways and in this case we are studying rugby players with uh with one of our phd students so uh how we 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 find in the way to measure or quantify the amount of fatigue that they carry into the taper and then we apply uh, different tapering strategies to see if we can come up with uh, a same or a similar level of performance at the end of the taper, even though they come into the taper with different levels of fatigue. And another strategy we are uh, testing is whether we can uh, apply not only a taper, but also additional recovery, proactive recovery strategies to facilitate the recovery of those athletes who are coming into the taper with uh, higher levels of fatigue. So let's say an athlete comes into the taper with a level of fatigue, uh, I'm making up the numbers, seven, and another one comes to the taper with a level of fatigue of nine. We would apply the same taper to both of them, but the one who has a nine level of fatigue, in addition to the taper, will get uh, contrast water therapy and com and compression garments and massage every other day. And maybe applying the same taper, but adding on top of that proactive recovery strategies might allow them to come to the same level of performance at the end of the taper. Because one of them is getting not only the recovery from the reduced training, but also the recovery from those proactive uh, recovery strategies. That's interesting. But we're, we're still looking into that. Yeah, that's interesting that the architecture of those two tapers would be exactly the same. It's just the things that you're adding. I mean, literally the way that this shows up from a practical perspective to try to put to try to put some some realistic training framework on those level seven and level nine numbers. If you think about this, a lot of athletes will make their hardest training week the week immediately preceding the taper they have their in, in an ultra running world what happens is is they do their two longest runs the last two runs before they taper i think that's a bad strategy but uh first off i don't think that that you should have your highest acute training load at the same time you have your highest cumulative training load which would be at the end of the training phase that's a kind of another conversation but the person with fatigue level nine would be doing that. And the person fat with fatigue level seven, they're just kind of steady stating their training volume leading up into the taper. And so I think the practical advice is if you end up in that in situation A that I mentioned, where you've got those two last long runs, the longest runs that you're going to ever do right before the taper, it might be a good strategy not to change the architecture of the taper, but to insert these adjunctive recovery modalities as a means of enhancing what's going on. That, that can be an option or another option is to do what you mentioned that, that you usually do, uh, that maybe if an athlete needs extra recovery during the taper, instead of reducing by 60%, you might reduce by 80%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's the second option. But the idea of um, doing extra training or doing the highest training load in the lead up to the taper is, is not a stupid idea. And, and it's something that is actually uh, recommended to overreach an athlete. It is. It means walking in a fine line yeah. between between. It's it's risky, but uh, it but it might induce a higher level of functional overreaching that might end up giving you a higher level of supercompensation if you get the taper right. So when I was coaching uh, uh, elite triathletes. I would do an Ironman in particular, I would do the highest load mesocycle and it was a, a shorter mesocycle of two weeks immediately before the taper. So the two weeks prior to the taper were very, very solid training because I wanted to, to reach that, um, that overreaching state that would lead to a higher supercompensation point providing 
<laughs> provided that we got the taper right. Yeah, I think that when you're looking at it on that lens, when you're looking at it through a mesocycle lens and your mesocycles are two weeks, isn't that what you just said? Two weeks? Uh, that particular one before the taper, it was, well, my mesocycles are, were usually four weeks, okay. but the final the final two weeks of the uh, of the pre-taper mesocycle were the ones with the highest loads. Okay, so, but here's the crux of it. And then this, this is getting to satiate my own internal curiosity versus anything else. I, I've always looked at it as a mismatch as within that mesocycle. And let's just, let's just say it's four weeks, right? Just because that's what most people are going to be used to. You're gradually accumulating fatigue throughout, that, throughout those four weeks. Whenever you're putting the highest acute single session load, at the end of that hot, uh, at the end of that fatigue accumulation phase, that is that is a potential mismatch for catastrophe. I might be overstating the the catastrophe part of it because you're combining the highest cumulative training load with the highest acute single session training load at the same time. Some athletes can handle that, and some athletes, as you mentioned, can get a super compensation from those two things colliding at once. But it's a really tricky thing to get right, and not one that I normally like to like alchemize at this critical stage right before the race. Mm-hmm. Well, what you are describing is uh, what I usually call um, doing the competition before the competition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, that that doesn't make any sense. But and and I don't I I can never um, I can never make a recommendation about a particular training session because for me one particular training session means absolutely nothing unless I know what has been done before and what and what is coming after. So very often I get a question by someone saying, uh, "Well." Uh, Last week I did a four-hour bike ride. Is that good or bad? I said, <laughs> That's just an example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, what's the length of my I'm, longest long run? This is what we get in ultra running all the time. Yeah, what should the length of my longest long run be? I'm like, how can I answer that? Come on, people. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't mean anything. An isolated training session means absolutely nothing. It all depends on why you are doing it and when you are doing it and what you are trying to achieve. And, and for that, you need to know what you've been doing before and what you plan to do after. So doing this ultra hard session or ultra intense session at the end of a, of a very high training load might mean that you are you know, spending all your energy two weeks before the actual competition. Exactly. But it, 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 it all depends on whether uh, it makes sense to do that particular session within the framework of your training mm. program. So interesting. We're, we're going to leave it there, man. Maybe we can bring you back on to go down that rabbit hole to discuss how we balance the acute and the chronic training loads within mesocycles. Because a lot of people have you know, questions on that. Like, should you do the hardest workout when you're the most fresh? Should you do the hardest workout when you're the most fatigued? How can you combine the two for super compensation? A little bit of it gets into nerdy training structure, but I love that stuff, man. But we're going to leave it there. Those of you that are going into races, heed those words. Keep your training simple. Don't be afraid to back off the training load. And the number one error that you can make is try to incorporate things that you haven't done in training beforehand. Um, Inigo, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was really insightful. I really appreciate it. Uh, where can the listeners learn more about you or any of the work that you do? Well, I have a, I have a website called inigomujica.com and they can follow me on, on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is Inigo Mujica, um, how do you call it? Low dash. Uh, <laughs> Underscore. At the, okay, so my Twitter account is uh, Inigo Mojica underscore E-N for English because I have another account in Basque language and Spanish. Go give Inigo a follow. He's a great follow on Twitter. I've, all, I've learned a lot from just trolling you on Twitter, essentially. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. And there you have it, folks. 
There you go. Much thanks to Inigo for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed that conversation. He's been somebody that I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long, long time. Hopefully we can bring him back for more insight because as I mentioned from the onset, he's one of the few people in the world that just has this incredible fusion of science and practice over many years of working with very high level athletes in a multitude of sports. And it shows when he gives advice. I hope you all appreciated this podcast. And if you did head on over to Apple podcasts and give this rate, this podcast, a rating or a review. I appreciate all those rating and reviews that come in and they mean a lot to me personally. And as always, you guys, that's it for today. We will see you out on the trails. 